tonight on Lost in the Vault. Where are we? Atlantis, where else? Can we go to CNN Center? Can I meet Ted Turner? The Braves playing? Hello. Hello. Hey, everybody. Greetings. Yeah. Welcome to the first official episode of Lost in the Vault. Woo! You made it. You made it. You're joining us here in front of the vault. What is with you in that vault thing? I'm trying to create imagery. (laughs) I'm a writer, Talon. This is, it's my job. All right. All right. Whatever floats your boat. Um, If you can't tell, we are recording this on the same day as we recorded our introductory episode. In other words... It's taking a lot longer for you to listen to this than it took us to record it. Well, Dinah, introduce yourself. I am your co-host, Dallin Agatone. And I am the other co-host, Amanda. I don't, I said um before my own name, as if I don't know my own name. <laughs> you, you, do, you forgot your own last name, so maybe you don't I, know your own name. <laughs> my name is Amanda Dukowitz. It is not Amanda Hopper. It is not... Amanda Moon. It's not Amanda Smith. I can tell you what it's not, but I couldn't tell you what it is. Who are those people? Just they're just last names I thought of in my head. I'm not Amanda Bynes. I wish you were Amanda Bynes. We might actually get some clicks. (laughs) (laughs) So welcome to this episode. The first official episode of Lost in the Vault. That's right. You're at the marking of a very important occasion. We're official now. Yeah. This is our opening. This is our big debut. Yes. We're going to make it onto Broadway. Yes. We're going to be stars. We're going to be stars. We're going to be stars. We have a whole musical number written out for this episode. We have... But this movie isn't a musical. That's That's what's special about this particular film that we're talking about, at least at the time. So this was a movie that they explicitly made in... Almost a rebellion, I guess, in a like a, a defiance, defiance of Disney yeah. tradition. Um, because they wanted to be new, they wanted to be hip. Well, more so, this was their passion project of action adventure, and they didn't want it muddled by like a lot of Harryhausen and Jules Verne influences. Yeah, they didn't want it muddled by what they saw as like defining of like previous movies. They wanted this to be their own new very distinct thing yeah and boy is it distinct it is distinct that comes around with its art style its cast it's the way it's what it's about the way it's it moves everything the the film in case you don't remember from our introductory episode the film we're talking about Today is Atlantis, the Lost Empire. Hi, welcome to the Lost City of Atlantis. We are sitting here in front of the Lost City of Atlantis. (laughs) So just to keep track, folks, we are simultaneously in my dorm room in Kips Bay. We are at the Disney Vault underneath the Pirates of the Caribbean ride in Disney World. Mm -hmm. And we are in the Lost City of Atlantis. These are all the same place. Eventually, you're going to have to give up this conceit. I will never give up. I will, I will never give up. This will become the most convoluted thing, and you will have to deal with it. My railing against it is only encouraging you more. Oh, yeah. No, definitely. Yeah. All right. So, yes. Atlantis, The Lost Empire, released in 2001 from Walt Disney Pictures, produced by Walt Disney Animation Studios, then known as Walt Disney Feature Animation. Actually, production was split between um, the three 
three main, three of the Walt Disney Feature Animation Studios. Two of them now closed. There was the main California studio, which is still open. But then there was the Florida Animation Studios. At the Disney's Hollywood Studios theme park, which was shut down in 2004. And then there was Walt Disney Animation France, which was closed uh, in, which is closed in 2003. This is, as we mentioned before, this is, film is deliberately designed to be different from your typical Disney fair. Sure, it's got like princesses and it's got one princess. One princess. Her name is uh, Kida, which is short for Kidagakash. Um, I only know this because I watched this movie a lot as a kid, and she is the Atlantean princess, and she's a badass. She is a badass, and she's she's voiced by um, veteran voice actress Cree Summer, who, mm-hmm. if you know her for anything, she was Penny in the original Inspector Gadget series, um, Elmira Duff on Tiny Toon Adventures, uh, Susie Carmichael on Rugrats, um, Max Gibson on Batman Beyond. She's one of the voices of the green m M&M. and I'm not sure if she still currently <laughs> is. The, the sexualized voice. candy. Yes. Yeah. She she's lent her voice. She's the only sexualized. I know. Is is the brown M and M sexualized? Do you think? Yeah, it's supposed to be like they they couldn't just sexualize one M and M because people were complaining, so they added another one to sexualize. But this one's like her whole deal is like she's smart and sexy. There's like the green one, the OG, and then there's like this dominatrix. (laughs) 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 You just put images in my head. Listen, as if these images don't already exist. Do you think? Do you think they need to wear, like, bondage gear if they're already covered in the candy shell? <laughs> we, it's, uh, it's about, like, seven and a half minutes later and we've already, like, put we've, it off the We're rest. already talking about... The sex lives of the M&Ms. You know, I'm sure they have very rich sex lives. So... I mean, you gotta be. You know, what else do you have to live for if you're a, a, a candy with no genitals? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should start like at origins of it. Mm-hmm. Like we Definitely. we got to talk about the four main guys who oh, who are yeah. behind this movie. This was like a passion project of theirs. Yes, they, this is very much a project rooted in a small group of people's great interest, a love in, and an affection for a certain type of yeah. film that have been like you know stuff like the Harryhausen adventure films or the works of Jules Verne or yeah I guess you can also sort a bit of those Erwin Allen films with like the massive cast mm-hmm. that exists to get killed off though nobody really of the main cast gets killed off yeah in it. the first people we got to talk about are the film's directors um Gary Trasdale and Kirk Wise now and keep the name Kirk in mind because I will be talking about it later really really okay I'm in, okay so um both of them studied at CalArts, um, Gary Trotter and Kirk Wise. They're West Coast kids. And were hired at Walt Disney Feature Animation. Now, in the build of their career, they had different paths. Um, um, Gary Trousdale was an effects artist for the Black Cauldron and an effects animator for My Science Project. Black Cauldron, man. Well, um, Kirk Wise, he was an assistant animator for Great Mouse Detective. Uh, this wasn't at Disney, but he was the principal animator for the Amazing Stories episode Family Dog. So, but their first time working together, at least as far as I, we can gather from our research, was they worked together on story for 1988's Oliver and Company, a future Boston Vault entry, along with uh, Mike Gabriel, the co-director of Rescuers Down Under and Pocahontas, 
Joe Ranft, the late great Joe Ranft, who worked on Beauty and the Beast, Lion King, Toy Story, A Bug's Life, Cars. Um, Roger Allers, co-director of The Lion King. And Kevin Lima, the director of Goofy Movie and Enchanted and the co-director of Tarzan. So they work on that together. And then, now this is where it gets interesting because Mm -hmm. we've got to involve the intersection of the animation department and Mm -hmm. the theme parks. So in the late 80s, um, Epcot was developing a new pavilion, the Wonders of Life Pavilion, sponsored by MetLife. Now, the big e-ticket attraction there was Body Wars, directed by Leonard Nimoy. Oh, and Body Wars, yeah. And starring Elizabeth Shue. You ever been on the run? No, that's the one where you go inside the human body. Yeah, right? it's like Star Tours, but in the human body. So you shrink down, and then you're in the hearts and the lungs the blood. and the blood. But we're not talking about Body Wars. To, yeah. Yeah, but there was a, you know, there was a couple other attractions there, too, like The Making of Me, where Martin Short teaches you about the miracle of conception. What, Martin Short's there in Disney World to teach us about Canada and... Not for long. Are they taking that out? Yeah, they're taking out old Canada for a new Canada, Canada film. No more I'm Martin so Short and Epcot. You should be upset. I'm very upset. Martin Short's a national All right, treasure. folks. We, so we're going to riot. Yeah. We're going to meet in Disney... And we're going to protest um, Martin Short <laughs> leaving Canada, Epcot's Canada. Yeah, bring some, you know, you, you know, bring yeah. some signs. Bring some signs. Make some Maybe t-shirts. we can get a couple folk singers in there. Mm. Some really like Bob Dylan-esque songs. Oh, Martin Short, <laughs> he's leaving us short. Let's get Joni Mitchell out here. Let's get a... Whoever else wants to show up, the guitar. Getting back to like the actual story. So in Epcot, in yeah. the Wonders of Life. And then like, thing. the other attraction was an attraction called Cranium Command, which mm-hmm. is actually a pretty cool classic on Disney fans. Cranium Command, the production building up to it, they outsourced it to a production company called Colossal Pictures. And what they turn back in is an absolute mess, like mm-hmm. Disney executives. Especially like Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg, they absolutely yeah. despise it. So at the last minute, they hire uh, director Jerry Rees, mm-hmm. um, who's been involved in many uh, Disney theme park rides over the years, to like re come in and like redo it. And he's like, "Sure, I'll do it, but I can only really direct like the live action video segments. You're gonna have to get some different guys to do like the animated pre shows." So at first, they turned to a guy named Rob Minkoff. Mm-hmm. who you probably best know as the co-director of The Lion King. And Robin yeah. Koff initially agrees to do it, but then he bails, like, pretty early in the process. Gets out of there. When he gets offered to do a Roger Rabbit short, a roller coaster rabbit. Oh. So then they turn to, pretty much out of desperation, uh, Gary Trousdale and Kirk Wise are like, hey, you two, you're not doing anything. Please make, direct a pre-show for us for, for this ride. And they're like... Sure. So the pre-show for Cranium Command, have you seen it? No, I haven't. Um, well, if you do check it out, um, it, it, it is a very well-made pre-show. It's like very like get cartoony, the, very... Get the thumbs up. Very good comedic timing. Yeah, or like look it up for yourself. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's very well-made. So eventually, so essentially the ride gets done, the pre-show gets done. You know, the Disney execs go to see it and they're all pretty impressed. But Jeffrey Katzenberg is like, hey, you know, this pre-show really is something. In fact, it's better than the ride itself. Mm-hmm. So then at the time, he had a bit of a problem. Mm-hmm. You see, he was working on a project where 
The script wasn't working. Mm-hmm. The director, Richard Purdom, has just been fired. Yeah. So he turns to Garrett Trosdale and Kirk Wise and says, hey, I really liked that pre-show you did. How would you like to direct the film we've got in development at the studio called mm-hmm. Beauty and the Beast? So Beauty and the Beast comes out. It is the first animated film to be nominated for Best Picture. Whoa. Yeah. It's a beautiful movie. As, as, yeah, I mean, who doesn't love Beauty and the Beast? Yeah. I mean, I certainly I certainly do. And stupid people. If you don't like Beauty and the Beast, you're stupid. That was a bit far. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. I'm going to yell at you for having opinion. Yes. You know, um... Uh, obviously lost Best Picture to Sons of the Lands, but that was still yeah. a really big deal at the time, yeah. especially for in-house at Disney. So, you so know, they're on their way up. It broke and a record. It, like, not a record. It set a a new precedent for Disney movies. And then their follow-up film was uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame in 1996, mm-hmm. which, you know, it made money, but it wasn't nowhere near the um, no. box office juggernaut that no. was being A lot of angry, angry moms complained about that one. Really? Uh, Hunchback? Yeah. Yeah. Like at the time? Yeah. And still today, you know. Hmm. People have their qualms. It is certainly a lot darker than like the average yeah. Disney fair. You can like yeah. see them like pushing up uh, uh, yeah. against it even at, at the time. And, and I think I think Hunchback marks like a certain like turn of like trying to do something new, you know, of like, okay, we're going to do something a little bit more action-y, a little bit more... Um, Heavy in set themes and yeah. subject matter. You know, the book it's based off of is like, yeah. no picnic. Yeah, no. It leans away from the um, princess stuff that had, you know, been pretty popular before. In favor of stuff about, like... Racism and yeah. religious corruption. Very heavy political. And lust. Yeah. And I think that... I mean, definitely... political by Disney standards. I yeah. mean, it does downplay it a bit from the book, but... So, it, I think it marked a change that followed in years after, which was the experimental period. Yeah, it's, um, it's very, you very much see, like, the signs of the experimental yeah. era of Disney animation, which it... is when Atlantis came out. This was... The post-Renaissance. Yeah. Um, you see it start to shine era. through here. And then they start making movies about things that are different than what they had been in the Renaissance because they want to create something new, uh, basically for like the new millennium, you know, something for to draw in a larger audience than what they had previous. And this is... Uh, and po- expand their horizons past just fantasy. And this is post uh, Pocahontas when the Disney yeah. Renaissance starts getting into like diminishing returns. So yeah. that's the career of Gary Trousdale and Kirk White up to that point. Third guy is Don Hahn, producer Don Hahn, who so, uh, yeah, who started off from humble beginnings as a production assistant on the 1978 Don Blues director, The Small One, as well as a production assistant on 1983's Miss Mickey's Christmas Carol. He directed. Uh, he was the assistant director on Fox and the Hound, a production manager on Black Cauldron 1985. This he, is like what really starts to lead to his rise. He become, gets an associate producer credit on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which yeah. really does mark like perhaps a precursor to the Disney Renaissance. Yeah. You know, huge hit for yeah. Disney. Probably one of the most influential films mm-hmm. of the late 80s, possibly yeah. one of the most influential movies ever made it really did change animation 
and the way it was done, the combination of live action and animation was something that's not new, but the way they did it was new and like very well done in comparison to a lot of older stuff and like revolutionized a lot of that stuff. And not only that, but using like animated characters in a story that is very much more adult oriented than like what had previously come out of Disney. In fact, there was, you know, it was released by Touchstone Pictures, which was like their label for more adult films. So he produced that. Associate produced. Associate produced that and then produced a short. A Roger Rabbit short, Tummy Trouble. Mm-hmm. And that's his first producer credit. And like, then he, he produced Beauty and the Beast. 1991. And Lion King and Hunchback. Yes. And um, then he directed and wrote the host sequences for Fantasia 2000 and was the executive producer of the Emperor's New Group. So, you know, he's at home. He has a pretty big hand. That's a heavy. That's a heavy influence in Disney production at that time. Yeah, yeah, like the biggest things right there. And then in the post, if we can skip ahead, post Atlantis, the Lost Empire, he becomes the interim head of Disney Animation while Bob Iger and Steve Jobs are working out the Pixar deal before mm-hmm. um, you know sex pest John Lasseter can takes the reins as the heads of both as the creative heads of both mm-hmm. Pixar and Disney animation. So the next person on board is the screenwriter, uh, Tab Murphy. That's the fourth main guy. Yeah. Who, so he wrote a few movies that I'd never heard of called <laughs> uh, My Best Friend is a Vampire, Story of Gorillas in the Mist. Yeah, he's got a story credit on Gorillas in the Mist, mm-hmm. which you know, got him a nomination for mm-hmm. Best Writing Screenplay Based on Material from Another Medium at the 1989 Academy Awards. It's a very complicated award. Wrote and directed uh, Last of the Dogmen in 1995. And then he did the screenplay and story for Hunchback. Yes, in 1996. With Which, screenplay with Irene Mechie, I can't pronounce it, Bob <laughs> Sudiker, Noni White, and Jonathan Roberts. And then in 1999, he does the screenplay for Tarzan with Bob Sudiker and Noni White. Also, in 1999, he wrote a treatment for an unproduced sequel to the Roland Emmerich Godzilla movie, which I read through this treatment. Mm -hmm. It is absolutely dreadful. And I don't blame Tab Murphy for for this because it's a sequel to a dreadful movie, A. But also it's got elements that are very, very stupid. Mm. Like... It's got some cool ideas there, like Monster Island shows up in it, insectoid monsters kidnapping humans for food. Right. That, that's, that, that's cool. But then also stupid stuff like a new Godzilla that has imprinted on Matthew Broderick. Mm-hmm. Um, um, the love interest from the first one who critics very heavily criticized her performance in the first one. Mm-hmm. So their solution is to have her appear in only one scene. Oh. And in the rest of the movie, yeah. she's just yelling at Matthew Broderick over the phone. Like, they get married, but Matthew Broderick's not into it, and she just becomes the wife yelling at him over the phone, and then she's like, filed for... yell at Matthew Broderick. And then she filed for divorce at the end, leaving Matthew Broderick free to pursue the new hotness. Oh, and also, the main villain is known... I'm not making this up here. You can look it up. She's known as the Queen Bitch. Nice. Classic. Keep it classy. Keep it classic. I mean, it fits with the oeuvre of Roland Emmerich. Those are our four main players. And so they went on to start creating. Yeah. And the story 
Um, well, it starts October 1996. Hunchback's just finished production. And Kirk Wise, Gary Trousdale, and Don Hahn go to a Mexican restaurant, you know, and they're talking over, like, margaritas and uh, chips. And they're like, hey, you know what we liked? I like those old Harryhausen movies where they're like, you know, fight monsters and shit. Like uh, Mysterious Island and Jason and the Argonauts and Sinbad. And you know what else I like? 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Jules Verne. And In Search of the Castaways. And Out of the Top of the World. Like those old adventure films Disney made in like the mm-hmm. 60s and 70s. So why don't we do, why don't we do one of those? Why don't we do like a modern, mm-hmm. like animated version of those? That'd be pretty fun. And it was also uh, somewhat inspired by the Pirates ride in a way. Oh, and like Captain Murphy action. was there at that dinner too. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, the Pirates. Yeah, so it, it went through a lot of like conceptual like changes. Joss Whedon was writing at one point, um, but... <laughs> none of his, he's he stated that none of his content has actually made it into the final script. Yeah, none so of it. So we don't know what, yeah. So, but you know, how it is with like the, the writer's guilt. Yeah. And all that. So yeah, this is an interesting quote from Tab Murphy because it really shows like what they were going into with this. Um, we had a mandate for this movie early on. No singing, no dancing, just explosions. <laughs> So they went in very much, I think, also trying to create a movie. Well, at least it was responded to as a movie that was trying to expand the Disney brand beyond like a what it saw as a female audience, I think, in what like the merchandising with like the princesses and things like that. Yeah, that does become a thing mm-hmm. like around so, the early 2000s. At least in the merchandising, a lot of it was geared like as a more like, oh, look, hey, hey, boys, hey, boys, this is like video game. First yeah. person shooter video game for yeah. your computer. You get you. They, they had um, like games that they would like give away in cereal boxes and stuff like that. Apparently some of them have gotten good reviews. Really? Which is surprising. And it's actually one of them is actually a prequel to flesh out some of the lore in the movie. Because this is a movie with a lot of lore. They actually and a hired, lot of inspiration. They had they actually hired Mark Ockrand, who you probably know he mm-hmm. created the uh Vulcan and Klingon languages for yeah. Star Trek. He created yes. an entire Atlantean language. If you look it up, mm. you can. There's actually a Wikipedia page for the Atlantean language. They've got an yeah. entire alphabet and grammar and syntax mm. and all that jazz. Yeah, this was a passion project. But also that brings me back to the Kirk thing because that's the second connection to Star Trek. The um, you know the guy they got to create this language. And then there was also um, the main villain's uh, middle name is actually Tiberius. So it's like James is, Tiberius Kirk. Yeah. So except his name is whatever Tiberius Rourke. Howard Tiberius Rourke. Howard Tiberius Rourke. I and believe. then um, oh, also the fourth Star Trek reference is that letter Nimoy uh, voiced the Emperor. Yeah. Uh, Kida's father. Yeah. How do we forget that? There's a lot of like differences from like what was coming out from Disney Animation at the time that actually did make Disney pretty nervous. Um, yeah. For one thing, no songs, as I mentioned. Well, technically there is a song during the end credits where the dream takes you, performed by Maya, 
and written by the film's score composer, James Newton Howard, and Diane Warren, who's with previous who has written stuff like Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now from Mannequin. <laughs> I Don't Wanna Miss a Thing from Armageddon. Uh, Blame It on the Rain by Millie Vanilli. <laughs> Rhythm of the Night by DeBarge. If I Could Turn Back Time by Cher. Mm-hmm. You know, not pretty good thing, but the song is not very good at all. In fact, I believe Consequence of Sound called it the third worst Disney song behind uh, wow. the Canine Crunchy theme mm-hmm. from oh One Dalmatians and What Makes a Red Man Red from Peter Pan. Oh my God. Which you know your song's bad if the only two that are bleeding in the worst category are racism and a and fake commercial. Yeah. Song. <laughs> yeah. So no songs. That's no songs. Big, big thing. It was made in a 70 millimeter cinemascope format, like, mm-hmm. like the big epics of back then, like Dr. Zivago yeah. and yeah. Ben-Hur. This was the big spectacle movie. Which, you know, very difficult to do in animation. Definitely, definitely. But I think they somewhat succeeded, at least in, like, the style they went for. The- so pretty much their solution for, like, mm-hmm. you know, making sure that it wasn't too big of a hassle was... Mm-hmm. Um, to quote Kirk Wise, um, we just suggested they look at it a different way. We said, what if we just say it's the same amount of drawing and painting and we change the shape of the window we look at it through? Everyone kind of backed off after that and breathed a big sigh of re- relief. Also, no cuddly sidekicks in this movie. Yeah. At one point, one of the, ma- the main character, Milo, we'll get to mm-hmm. him. He had a pet rat named Plato. Mm-hmm. He was cut. Goodbye, Plato. The first animated film from Disney to be rated PG since Black Cauldron. Oh Yeah. Nowadays they're like edgy here. Nowadays like a PG rated animated film is like a dime a dozen for yeah. whatever reason that I don't I partially blame Toy Story 3 for this yeah. because that was rated G and then a whole bunch of parents complained that it was far too intense for young children. There are a lot of kids movies that I'm confused at why are PG because they might have like one or two moments that might scare a kid, you know, or like mild, rude, very, humor. very mild. Yeah, I've seen like movies where like bullying is a an element in it, and that's I'm pretty sure. PG. I'm pretty sure Frozen got a PG just because of the shoe size joke. Yeah. So and then uh, also the largest amount of CGI in any Disney animated film up to that point. Yeah. Okay. Every scene has. Computer effects. Yeah. So, and it's pretty amazing how well it's integrated into the world because it feels very much like an integral part of the world. Like they have the designs for the large, like fish-like submarine that they have. The the, the Leviathan, right? Yeah. Yeah. And all the monsters that they have. The No, the Leviathan is a big giant monster. What is... Um, I don't remember the name of the submarine, but like... Is, the, it, is it the Nautilus? No, that's the 20,000 leagues <laughs> of the sea somewhere. Yeah. There's a lot of small references to um, those kinds of movies and things like that. You know, the, you know, going all the way underwater, the like monsters and such. Yeah, there were there were going to be more monsters, mm-hmm. but um, the head of Disney animation at the time, I believe it was David Stanen. He um, was like, oh, there's too many monsters. Where's the heart? Yeah. People don't want to see the monster fight and they want to get to Atlantis mm-hmm. quicker. So the two monsters that they kept in the movie were the fireflies, which are which literally set things on fire, which is fun. And um, the, Leviathan, the Leviathan, which, which is, is 
badass, mysterious. The fucking coolest thing. Yeah. And it really works well to create that like sense of danger and a lot of the great action comes from the, the scene where um, they are underwater in the submarine and they approach the Leviathan. That's probably the highlight of this Definitely. movie. I mean, the rest of the film is good too, but there it very much has like it very much is like the big highlight moment. The scenes involving action are very action heavy and done very well. I gotta correct myself. It wasn't David Stanen who it was Thomas Schumacher who pushed for less monsters. Okay. Um, if for context, Thomas Schumacher had become head of, had then become head of both Walt Disney feature animation and Disney theatrical after the monster success that was the Lion King on Broadway. Mm-hmm. He's no longer in charge of Walt Disney feature animation, but he still does run Disney theatrical, which, yeah. you know, good for him. So the reason that Atlantis looks the way it does because of Mike Mignola. Yes. Mike Mignola, huge influence on the art style. Yeah. So if movie. you don't know who Mike Mignola is, he worked on Hellboy and that, re- like, you can see the carryover of his style and, like, those very geometric and angular kind of character designs in this movie, which it's a it's kind of a blend between his style and the original Disney style. So they called it Dis- Disneyola, I think. Really? Yeah, which sounds like, it sounds French, you know? Disneyola. Um, um, it, it probably is one of the most visually distinct oh, yeah. Disney movies. Of, like anywhere out of Disney animation. Really? Definitely. Like, it's shows one of the most distinct, I think, and like popular animated movies. And it really shows like how much of a lost art like traditional animation is, yeah. especially with Disney, because you don't really get the, those kind of like distinct art styles anymore with like what's been coming out of uh, Disney animation mm-hmm. as of late. Like, like I would not say they look all exactly the same, but the art style is definitely do bleed very similarly. Like mm-hmm. if you like like the art style for Frozen, the art style for Tangled, they look. Mm-hmm. Very much alike. Yeah. Um, so it's really funny. Um, so here's a, a quote from Mike Mignola. I remember watching a rough cut of the film and these characters have these big, square, weird hands. I said to the guy next to me, those are cool hands. And he says to me, yeah, they're your hands. We had a whole meeting about how to do your hands. It was so weird. I couldn't wrap my brain around it. So it starts off like this, this early idea, this passion project and becomes a whole film. And... Obviously, it it gets messed with a bit by like demands of test audiences and demands of expense. That's another reason why they cut a lot of the monsters. Like it was apparently considered uh, too expensive. And according to Don Hahn, the first um, red flag on how this film was going to go when was when they were talking to then Walt Disney feature animation head Thomas Schumacher. And was describing the whole thing for him. And his first question was, who's Ray Harryhausen? <laughs> and besides them, the Leviathan and the Fireflies, which stay in the movie, originally the four monsters they would encounter on the way to Atlantis would have mm-hmm. represented like the four elements, water, earth, fire, and mm-hmm. air. So the water monster, Leviathan, and the fire monster stays. But the air monster would have been something called a squid bat. A whole bunch of squid bat. bats. You do see those in like a brief appearance in like the travel montage in the film oh the travel montage a lot of this movie feels very crunched it is very very it's like an hour and a half 
It's like a two-hour movie compressed to an hour and a half. Yeah. There's a total plot shift, really, in the second half when they get there. I would even say it's like in the second half. It's more like the last 30 minutes. That's the problem. Like. They want us to get to Atlantis faster. Mm-hmm. And yet when we get there, I, I feel like we have not spent enough time in it. Yeah. And There's I, a huge world here that I think they needed a bigger movie. They need another half hour. Yeah. At least. It's, it's, a, it's a nice mess, but it's still a little messy. Yeah, it is. It's not like a, a mess from like poor craft of no. the result of the filmmakers. It's a mess because... It's ambitious. Yeah, and too ambitious for its own good yeah. at a time when the studio wasn't making enough income yeah. to justify ambition. So the reason why um, the Disney Renaissance fell into a rut is because after the box office failure mm-hmm. of the Rescuers Down Under, yeah. they refused to do anything but like fairy tale musicals. Yeah. And eventually the public got sick of them. Yeah. And they that, needed something more. And then that caused the collapse and people did not really go to Disney animated films anymore. And it's, and that leads to like the 2000s Eisner era when yeah. pretty much nothing's making any money. And, this, and there's a lot of sci-fi at that time. A lot of things inspired by things other than like like European um, fairy tales, which like a good chunk of Disney's content previous had been. Not all of it. And this is um, one of the films that like mm -hmm. contributes to the end of the Eisner era. This and and Pearl Harbor are two of the films that come out this year that that's another film will be definitely. What year did it come out? 2001, 2001, Pearl Harbor. So do we want to talk about some of the other inspirations of the movie very quickly? Uh, sure. Um, so we talked about Mike Mignola and his art style influence. Um, it was also influenced by um, propaganda posters from the early 1900s. The crew went to um, the Army Ordnance Museum um, in Maryland and also the Carlsbad Caverns in New Mexico for references. So like... They crawled around little caves so they knew how to, like, draw Are the Carlsbad caves. Caverns caves little? I don't know if they're little, but they're... The I feel like they're, they're larger. <laughs> they... So, I, they are small spaces that turn into larger spaces, basically, once you get in there. Ah, uh, you've been there? No. That's just what I've gathered from research. Uh, I wish. I'd love to crawl through caves. I, I'd like to go through caves. Yeah. Um, so the clothing references they took from the Smithsonian Institute. Um, and they inspired the submarine by the Disney version of the Nautilus um, in Disney's 20,000 Leagues. Um, this is a really funny quote from Don Hahn. Um, will the bug about talking about like how they were like traveling everywhere? They're like, well, the Bugs Life guys, they only got to go out back of Pixar to the parking lot for their research, <laughs> which is true. So this was a very dedicated team who had to do a lot of visual research and a lot of putting together of a style and a big grand kind of place that 
was different from previous Disney and uh, previous, settings and backgrounds. And previous from Kirk Trosdale and Gary Wise's yeah. own filmography. Very like much this, so. And Don Hans. This was very new ground for it, them. It's very new ground, but it was also something they're very familiar with in their personal lives. You know, the things that they really loved were what's shown through here, which is that classic kind of like... Indiana Jones-esque, you know, action movie. Yeah. So you want to start... We've discussed a, a bit of the behind scenes. We'll probably, like, yeah. go back and forth from that later. But let's get into Let's talk the, about the movie itself. Yeah, the movie the In movie its content, proper. which is a lot. There's a lot. There, this movie... Um, Do you want to start with the opening? The opening... Okay, so this movie begins with the city of Atlantis against, like, a threat of being destroyed. Yeah, there's, like, a big flood. There's, yeah. like, those flying fish mm-hmm. one-man machines yeah. that are, like, flying back to dodge the waves and, the, like, the big force field thing yeah. comes up and everyone's, like, in a everyone's panic. Everyone's freaking out. You see this woman. She's standing there with her little, like, baby daughter. And then she, like, looks up at the sky and the crystal around her neck starts like glowing and floating and she starts glowing and floating and the little girl looks up at her and is like screaming like you know no mom don't go and then like this giant force field encompasses the entire city yeah the the mother she yeah. rises levitates to the um giant crystal with the big yeah. stone head surrounding I forgot to mention the, the giant like crystal thing with the big stone it got big yeah. stone heads surrounding so it. there's some magic mystical shit going on and this little girl is watching her mom float up sacrifice herself and then to create this, this force field that you know, the flood waters rushed over yeah. and then, like, the ground, like, solidifies around it. Yeah, and basically the mother protects the city. At the expense of her own life. It's And that's yeah. how the film opens. And then we are in a... We're, we're in this guy's, like, boiler room. Big problem with the opening. I have no idea what the fuck is going on. It's a lot to process at once. And not in a good way. It's, yeah. I... And uh, this was not the originally intended open. The originally intended open would have involved Vikings that were like sailing on the ocean and end up having an encounter with the Leviathan. Mm-hmm. And once again, you can uh, thank Walt Dis- then Walt Disney feature animation head Thomas Schumacher for this. Mm-hmm. He said that, that intro was no good, that the audience needed to have a connection with the people of Atlantis in order to care about them. And so the opening needed to focus on them and the thinking of it. But the big problem is that the film is structured around this um, mystery of, like, what the hell's going on? Like, what happened to the Atlantean culture? What happened to the language? What was the deal with the crystals? What is all this? But it's a mystery we already half know. Yeah. But, and since it's told to us at the beginning in a very confusing way, yeah. we think we were supposed to already know entirely. Yeah. And then because we don't already know entirely what we think we are supposed to know, mm-hmm. we get frustrated and we sort of like check out on that front. Yeah, I agree. This world has a, a lot of like 
world building to it, but it has a lot of half-baked lore. And it has a lot of half-baked concepts, you I know? I would even say, like, the lore and concepts are half-baked. It's the way, it's the way they present yeah. the lore and concepts that are half-baked. And they, they made this change, one change that affects mm-hmm. so much of the rest of the movie. Very much at the last minute. The original intro had already been fully animated yeah. at this point. Another example of this is the Shepherd's Journal, which is in the hands of our main character, who is introduced after this opening, um, giving a lecture in a Milo Thatch. Milo Thatch. Um, voice, the expert in gibberish. Voiced by Michael J. Fox. You know, Back to the Future. But his lead animator was John Pomeroy, who was one of the original guys that walked out with Don Bluth from Disney Animation in the yeah. 70s to, to start off on their own. And he produces a lot of Don Bluth films, The Secret of Nim, Dragon's Lair, Space Ace, An American Tale, uh, Land Before Time, All Dogs Go to Heaven, Rockadoodle, Thumbelina, Troll in Central Park. A lot of things, Peng- yeah. Pebble and the Penguin. And he was like a directing animator for a lot of these movies too. So a little bit after, like in the middle of production of Pebble and the Penguin, um, he gets this offer from Disney. Hey, come back to us. We want you to be the supervising animator for John Smith in Pocahontas. And you gotta remember, now we know that Pocahontas is a piece of shit and we will get to yeah. Pocahontas eventually. That is definitely gonna be a future loss in the vault entry, but... At the time, this was, like, hyped up to be Disney's big movie. Yeah. Like... Yeah, this was very much, like, a big, big project. Of their prestige movie. Their their best picture winner. In fact, infamously, many Disney animators considered having to work on Lion King as a lesser job compared to working on Pocahontas. Wow. So, like, it was usually, like, the new guys who, um... And people who wanted to draw animals that were stuck on Lion King. Well... (laughs) The big boy playing Pocahontas. <laughs> and similarly, and I found this very interesting, getting assigned to work on Shrek was considered a punishment at DreamWorks wow. Animation to the point where they called it getting Shreked. Oh my god. So so he does agree to come back to play John Smith, and then he does also does the lead character animator for the Firebird in Fantasia. Also interestingly, as a the three main references um, that John Pomeroy used for Milo Thatch were uh, Dick Van Dyke, uh, Jimmy Stewart, and the creator of the Atlantean language, Mark Ockrand. So as the creator of the Atlantean language also is, Milo Thatch is re- uh, referred to as an expert in gibberish. He's a linguist. Yeah, but he is not respected by his peers um, so he's under, he's in this boiler room and he's introduced as like talking about this thing called the Shepherd's Journal, which contains information about the lost city of Atlantis. Which he's like is, giving a fake lecture. Yes. Like, he's very, very interested in this because this was his grandfather's work. He teaches them that there's a mistranslation about where Atlantis actually is. No, where the Shepherd's Journal actually is. Uh, okay. Yeah. It, um, people think it's in Ireland, but he believes mm-hmm. it's actually in Iceland. Because the R, they, he said they mistranslated the R and the C in Ireland and Iceland. And then he... He's, uh, he's due to make this presentation. He's like practicing yes. in front of like mops and yeah. such while he like has his office in the boiler room. Yeah. And like they yell down at him to like adjust the heat and all that. And like... Yeah. Pretty much they're, they're like grunt worker. Like you get the sense oh, yeah. that... He's like, a janitor. He's like... They do. He does the dirty work, and they don't respect him at all. 
Like, uh, you can tell he's, like, a legacy hire. Yeah. Uh, based on, like, his grandfather. And they don't even respect his grandfather much. And, you know, it's establishing character moment. He, um, um, they deliberately, um, change the time of his proposal and only inform him afterwards. Yeah. And they're like, hey, we're not going to give you funding because we think you're an idiot and a flake. So that's nice. They're very kind to Milo Thatch. He's far dweebier than the average, like, Disney male protagonist. He's, I think... Especially like, considering the time frame this came out. He's the first, like, like the first male Disney, like, protagonist that's a dweeb character that doesn't become not a dweeb. Like, Hercules starts out like a wimpy little guy, you know, but then he's like, no, I'm actually strong. And you know? muscular. Yeah. I've he, got, like, he, like, gets I've got a super thing. strength. But throughout the entire movie, Milo Thatch is, like, pretty consistent in that. And I like that about him. He's very much, like, a, like... He's got to use his brains to, like, advance the plot. So he gets home, and, like, immediately when he gets home, there is a mysterious woman in his apartment, Lieutenant Helga Sinclair. And she is sitting in that, in his chair, and she is sitting with this, like, big jacket and, like, sexy dress, right? And they have a really awkward exchange. Who are you? How, how did you get in here? I came down the chimney. Ho, ho, ho. My name is Helga Sinclair. I'm acting on behalf of my employer, who has a most intriguing proposition for you. Are you interested? And she, like, takes off the jacket and puts it around her shoulders and, like, suggestively. Femme fatale. Yeah. And she is, like, the definition of a femme fatale. She's great. I, she like she was like a lesbian awakening for a lot of kids that I knew. Um, voiced by Claudia Christian, whom probably best known as Commander Susan Ivanova in Babylon Five. Mm-hmm. Her vocal performance, Claudia Christian's vocal performance, is very, 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 very good. Yeah, she's a very well like she's well designed. And, like, she's really cool, but it's also really, really funny to be introduced to, like, this very, very, like, sexy character out of the blue. And this is where, like, the plot, like, really, really starts. I should mention this before we get into it. The two leads, Milo and Kida, they're good characters. I very much like them. But this is very much a movie that lives and dies by its supporting cast. Oh, yeah. This is... this has a very large supporting cast, which is something which is something else that was very new for a Disney movie, I think, where they wanted to like expand like the they wanted to make like usually you have like the two leads and a bunch of comic relief. Yeah. This is far more of a like an ensemble picture. I mean, yeah. This still- is this is a film about like a bunch of characters from many different places coming together and like they going on this adventure there's and, a, like they each bring something different to the table because like you know there's like the doctor the engineer the weird guy with the dirt yes we reached their course there was actually a lot of criticism at the time that considered uh, a lot of reviews said that like the diversity of the cast mm-hmm. felt like like politically correct pandering. I Which didn't... is so strange because it's supposed to be like an adventure movie. And you, you know? need like, like a variety of... Ca- I didn't feel it was pandering. Yeah, no. I thought they were just keeping it varied and having like distinct, recognizable, memorable characters. And I thought it was very smart because they're trying to make this like very much like 
a an big, underdog story. Yeah, it's an underdog story, and it also ties into like this story about like, and if they find Atlantis, this is an international like this is a global breakthrough, and like it's so. And it's like these. It's just this scrappy team of yeah, of, of, like, of like a bunch weirdos of people, and misfits. Yeah, from a bunch of different places. Of course, they're going to all be different. Yeah. <laughs> so we go from, uh, you know, cl- from um, Helga Sinclair at Milo's house, and they go right to the mansion of a Mr. Preston Whitmore. And who is sitting there with his legs behind his head. Doing yoga. Yes. And, like, she tells him beforehand, you know, like, he's some sort of hard-ass. You will address him as Mr. Whitmore or Sir. You will stand unless asked to be seated. Keep your sentences short and to the point. Are we clear? And relax. He doesn't bite. Often. Suddenly, this movie feels very threatening. <laughs> and but then, like immediately after, we get another like a build up to Preston Whitmore. He just appears, and this leads to one of yeah. my other problems with this film is that the first and third acts feel very compressed. I feel like yeah. we get everywhere a bit too fast. There's a lot of movement. They go from place to place a lot. That's why we have a travel montage in the middle. There's so much that they're trying to fit in. in to like going. an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. And like, there's ways to do that. But I think the way they set up things and then the way they are revealed, um, especially with the Whitmore situation, where it's supposed to be like a, you know, a funny turn that he's not actually this like... Uh, Hard ass. He's just yeah. He's just this crazy. He's just this kooky eccentric, voiced by John Mahoney, yeah, dad from Frasier. It's I guess there's a few tonal issues, um, in the way they execute. I just think reveals. I just think the problem is this is not the kind of story that you can really um Mm -hmm. do in ninety minutes. It needs like at least two hours. Yeah. Like they're going for like this big action adventure mm-hmm. epic, and and you can't do an epic in ninety minutes. Yeah, I, I, that's just the truth, unfortunately. Yeah, and I don't, I don't unless blame. you time it perfectly and keep it very, very tight. But like that's very hard to do with an epic, and especially one about like with, uh, with an ensemble cast world. where you got to get to know every individual member of an ensemble cast. And so the characters. All the, the ensemble cast, all of their personalities come through very well. They're very distinct. They're I, very distinct. They don't get any character development. I, I'd say they get a Mainly their character development is like how they grow to accept like Milo as one of the team. Like it's established there. Yeah. They were all like a, a team mm-hmm. before Milo showed up and they don't really like like yeah the 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 new kid they, you know they yeah because he's not in with them he's not one of them yeah which is weird because it's established they were working with his grandfather yeah so, so that that's another but that's so, that's a relatively minor flaw that you can like suspend your disbelief yeah so you can't like expect like like really intense like personal growth from all each of the characters individually but mostly it is like a group development um where they come to be you know better people and etc and then they do like little cool things on their own in like their own scenes you know yeah they add on very well 
to the dynamic and the comedy and like as a group they are very very dynamic together they are they are they are great they probably are the best supporting cast in any disney movie oh definitely so after Whitmore. So, so we Whitmore, you know, they, int- like after we're introduced, turns out he's like a friend of Milo's grandfather, mm-hmm. and you know he wants to um fun. And Milo's grandfather, if we have not said this before, he is dead before the events of this movie. Yes. And so Whitmore, he's a very rich guy, very rich, reclusive individual. He has this really big fish tank with a bunch of weird ass big fish in the background of it and this really long table where they're sitting across from each other. Bunch of and, bunch of weird tropical fish. Yeah. And Whitmore's sitting there across the table like Milo, the Shepherd's Journal. And Milo's like, the Shepherd's Journal? But it's only a myth. And like this is my life's work, etc. And then he's roped into this big action adventure that this uh, rich guy is going to fund. Yeah, he's going to fund this like try to expedition Atlantis. to Atlantis as like a as a tribute to his dear friend, Milo's yeah. grandfather, and get this team together. So they pretty much go to the sub, and we yeah. like this is the point where we get introduced to like the rest of the supporting cast. When I want, so you want to. So let's go through the supporting cast in order of appearance. Yes. So first off, we have Cookie, the ship. Shim- the, the cooks, voiced by um, the late, fantastic, mm-hmm. very much missed Jim Varney, who, to talk about how awesome Jim Varney is, would take like a, a whole episode in of itself. Yeah. But so his character here his, is like this eccentric cook who is just kind of like disgusting. He's like, what the fuck's a vegetable? <laughs> um, he's very like... He's like the old, definitely the oldest of the cast, and they have like yeah. this very old school mentality yeah. to cooking. Like, you know, it's meat, and it doesn't look like food. And there's a great you what you get, and like you enjoy it. There's like a great deleted scene where, where he's like, "There's only three spices I need: salt, salt, and sodium chloride." And you know, he's just like very much like this old school pine. Mm-hmm. pioneer frontier chef for like the cavalry mm-hmm. that does not that just you know does not um that has, that has not updated to like the modern times and jim varney he was he, you may primarily know for two things one Ernest Ernest p warrell um commercial pitchman turned comedy star and then Slinky Dog in the Toy Story movies. Yeah. He sadly passed away in uh, 19... It was either 1999 or 2000 of lung cancer. He did not live to see this movie. In fact, he... So this Recording his dialogue, he knew that he was not going to live to see the finished product. Wow. That's always... And the such, film is dedicated to his memory. That's always such an amazing thing. Like the like little things that people are in or do that like are like the last thing they do. And that's kind of their legacy, even if it's like a forgotten thing. Like I didn't know that was his last movie before researching this movie. Um, but like knowing that it is and that he lent his voice to such a like fantastical work and wanted to be part of this project is really amazing and really great. Yeah, it is. He was very much a fantastic actor. Next, we're introduced to probably my favorite character of the entire film. Vinny is this deadpan man who is just like, yeah, 
I have the explosives. He's just super eager to mm-hmm. blow shit up and he's, just destroy things. He's so eager and he gets so excited, but in this complete, like... Very sedate way. Like, yeah. very dry and deadpan. Like... Mm-hmm. He like yeah. the most exp- like the most expression that he has is like raising his eyebrows like when he's excited <laughs> and he's only excited when he's maybe widening his eyes a bit yeah and he's voiced uh, by a writer and actor Don Novello who's worked on such shows as Saturday Night Live and SCTV he's probably best known like you older folks that are listening if you are listening uh, you old for, people out there for playing Father Guido Sarducci he apparently improvised. All of his lines. Like Which would, makes so much sense and also is amazing. Yes. So many, gr- the best lines come from him and here they're all improvised. Oh, definitely. Apparently just goes through the lines as written once and then just keep rewriting, re-ad-libbing his lines after that. Looks like we have a little roadblock. Jenny, what do you think? I could unroadblock that if I had about 200 of these. Problem is, I only got about 10 plus, you know, five of my own and a couple of chair bombs, road flare. He's just so passionate about yeah, he, explosives. And you can really sense that passion, even like oh, yeah. through his dad. Probably one of the best moments in this film is when they're all, all like discussing mm-hmm. like how they became to be like what they are mm-hmm. and like why they're on this quest. And like Vinny describes how he found his love for explosives and it's mm-hmm. one of the most strangely touching things in like yeah. the movie. My family owned a flower shop. We would sell roses, carnations, baby's breath, you name it. One day I'm making about three dozen corsages for this pram, you know, the one they put on their wrist. And everybody, they come, where is it, when is it, does it match my dress? It's a nightmare. Anyway, I guess there was this leak next door of gas or what. Boom! No more Chinese laundry. Blew me right through the front window. It was like a sign from a god. I found myself that boom. He can. He makes the destruction of a, a Chinese laundry sound poetic. <laughs> Probably one of the strongest performances in this film. Um, his supervising animator was uh, Russ Edmonds who was also the supervising animator for Max and the Little Mermaid, you know, the dog. Yeah. Prince Eric's sheep dog. Oh, yeah, that little dog. Little one eye showing through. Uh, Cody in The Rescuers Down Under. Um, Philippe in Beauty and the Beast. Uh, Sarabi in The Lion King. Phoebus in Hunchback of Notre Dame. And Sun God. And Kala in Tarzan. That's another interesting thing I, I just recall about this movie. They... Not only do these characters, they're, like, designed differently than usual Disney films, they're also moved differently. Oh, definitely. They move a lot stiffer. But not in a bad way. No, not in a bad way at all. Like, like you know, they move exactly as much as they, they yeah. need to. Like, oftentimes Disney has, like, more, like, flowy animation. Mm-hmm. Here, it, it's much more, like, solid. Like, yeah. big, thick lines. Yeah. And... Just thickness in general. Yeah. Like even so, even like the scrawnier guys are like, you know, they've got like very thick, defined hands. So speaking of thick, we have Commander Rourke, who is this really big, like G.I. Joe looking guy. Voiced um, by James Garner, Maverick yeah. TV's Maverick. Apparently when offered the part of Commander Rourke, he said he would do it in a heartbeat, which pretty which cool. Is so nice. 
It's always um, good to see like everyone's so passionate in this movie. Yeah, you can definitely sense the 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 passion, the like the beating heart of this movie. Yeah, and you know if you're at all savvy about any movie ever, he he is the villain. Yeah, you take one look at him and you go, all right. And so is Helga. Helga's also one of the villains that you probably guess. She that. kind of redeems herself in the end. Uh, well, I wouldn't know if she necessarily redeems it. I think it's more just she, revenge. It, I she does she, something for the rest of the group, even if it's out of uh, selfishness. She's a, she's a very good character. I do. I, I mean, she's a good character, but I wouldn't say she's a good character. Yeah. So then Milo goes to his room. Mm-hmm. And, and in one of my favorite scenes, he sits down on his bed and he looks because he's like, what am I sitting on? And there's just dirt in his bed with little flags embedded in it. And each of the flags is like flags from different countries. And then, and then two, you get, you see like this pair of eyes. These goggles. You hear these, like, these goggles, goggles. And you hear this little man Can go, I do the voice? You have disturbed the debt. <laughs> and out jumps my man Mole, who is this Gaston Molière, right? Brown. Is it yes. Gaston? I think it's Gaston. You're disgusting, Gert! Gert from around the globe, spanning the centuries! <laughs> what have you done? England must never murder his pride! So he jumps out, he like leaps at him, like hisses at Milo, this little like round French man who is obsessed with dirt. Mole is voiced by legendary Disney voice actor Corey Burden. Mm-hmm. Well, he's a legendary voice actor in general, but he's done you know a lot for, of. You know him for, for, as Captain Hook. Yeah, he was. He's. Been the voice of Captain Hook ever since um, the death of his original voice actor, Hans Conried. For the 2000 re-release of Fantasia, um, not Fantasia 2000, but (laughs) the re-release of the original movie, um, the original presenter, the audio track for the original presenter, Deems Taylor, um, it degraded to the point where it was unusable, so he dubbed over the voice. So if you're watching like a DVD or Blu-ray of Fantasia now, mm-hmm. and you're one, and that's not the voice of Deems Taylor you're hearing, that's the voice of Craig Moore, really? Coy Burton. Dale of Chip and Dale, he's been the oh. voice of him. Uh, current voice of the White Rabbit. Mad Hatter. Yeah, Professor Owl. Now going back to the earliest thing of Travdale and Wise, he was the voice of general knowledge in Korean Man. This tough drill sergeant voice, I don't sound off like you got a pair. And um, also used his Paul Freeze impression to be the voice of the ghost host for the Nightmare Before Christmas themed Haunted Mansion overlay, Haunted Mansion Holloway. Yeah. And I don't have this down in my notes, but I believe he's also the voice of Ludwig von Drake. You know, the- So this guy has, is like, does a lot of like, small but definitive voice roles for Disney. So, and this is another quote from Kirk Wise about the conception of Mole. Moliere, as scripted, he was a very stuffy professorial guy, a French mineralogist who was a connoisseur of dirt. One of the story artists took this original content and juiced up the character into this horrible little burrowing creature with a wacky coat and strange headgear of extending eyeballs. We are we were so enthralled with the new look that we changed the script to fit the new character. He's such a strange little man. Like he's like who just like is so passionate about dirt and just like That's one of the through lines of the thing, passion. Like everyone in this oh, film yeah. is passionate about what they do, except for Every, the villains. Okay. Everyone yeah, everyone participating in this movie is passionate about the movie, and every character in the movie is pa- passionate about something. Again, besides the villains. Yeah. Their their only passion is money. Yeah. So message. Af- yeah. 
So after Mole is introduced and like harasses um, Milo for a second about dirt, um, in comes Dr. Joshua Sweet, who immediately like takes a towel and like scares Mole away by like whipping him with it and is like, shoo, shoo, get out of here. Get like, back get to out the of pit here. you can. Yeah. And Mole he's his, probably the friendliest of oh, the, the yeah. He's he's friendly, but also so just like like he has no sense of boundaries. Think out your tongue and say ah. Oh no, really. I love ah. so, that. Ah, blah, blah, blah. Really? I have family up that way. Beautiful country up there. You do any fishing? Oh, oh, oh. me? I hate fishing. I hate fish. Hate the taste, hate the smell, and hate all them little bones. Here, I'm gonna need you to fill these up. With what? So like he just constantly like pulling things out, talking very fast, but like he is very, very like, he's like, he's the least abrasive person <laughs> that they have uh, come to so far. Granted, that's not saying much, give it. Yeah. yeah that's another thing. Like the, the whole cast is much more abrasive. Mm -hmm. we, we've been talking about how much more different this is from typical, mm -hmm. I, I just think it, it can't be understated, just how much yeah. of a bold depart sure this was at the time yeah there's a lot of like grit i guess to this movie and a lot of the characters you know like these characters feel like like they're all covered in a layer of dust you get the sense that they've like lived these like entire lives beforehand and you don't really, yeah i'm not sure if you necessarily get that sense with a lot of disney films no a lot of characters in previous disney movies are like very like clean cut like yep this is what I am. This or, is who I am now. And like, this is my role. And even if they're not clean cut, they're more a, they a feel clean, clean cut type of dirty. They feel like, yeah, yeah. Like, I love Aladdin, but you know, Aladdin doesn't seem mm -hmm. like a thief that's lived on like no. the outskirts of society for a No, long. like all of, like most Disney characters are like, if they're dirty and stuff like that, but a lot of those are villain characters, you know? And it's like, yeah, they're supposed to be like gross and like, and then there are good guys that's supposed to be dirty. They're a clean kind of dirty. Yeah, they're clean because like they're all like they're all met like designed to be like hot and stuff like that, you know? Aladdin steals bread for food, but yeah. he gives it to those poor orphans afterwards. Yeah. Because we don't want to be glamorizing stealing to the kids. But in they this They might steal Disney toys. And then where would we be? <laughs> in this movie, the characters have no concept of personal space. They like yell at each other. They're rude. They're, like they all have little character flaws. They pull mean pranks. Mm -hmm. And like they're very fun. They, they are very fun. And I think they inspire a lot of like of the less clean cut characters after them too. But like not in the same, like none of them have the same sense of, of like. Edge. Of Yeah. And like realism in a way. I mean, I guess Emperor Kuzco beforehand, Emperor's new group. Yeah. But he was more like, you're supposed to hate this guy. You're not yeah. supposed to hate any of these guys. Yeah. Because like they, um, throughout the movie, they have like this intention of like, you know, finding money and like that seems to be where they're going. And like when they turn to like the good side, you know, Milo's side and stuff, stuff like that, like they're still abrasive people. They're still exactly themselves. But their values change and yeah. it's really great yeah like, it's not like other Disney movies where it's like oh if this guy was like skeevy or like whatever before and then by the end he's transformed into like you know oh I've learned like niceness and I'm nice now you know they, they don't really need to like mm. learn any if it was any other Disney movie it would be like Milo probably learning to accept these guys instead yeah. of these guys learning to accept Milo does yeah. that make sense 
Yes. That's the the main thing they learn. And those are like all of the cast that's like formerly introduced oh, to um, Milo. Because uh, there's Joshua two- Sweet's voice actor and such. Joshua Sweet, yes. Voiced by uh, Phil Morris, um, who, if you know him from anything, he played Tyrone Jackson on the soap opera The Young and the Restless, uh, Grant Collier on the 1998 Mission Impossible revival, not the movie, the TV show, and his biggest role up to that point, Jackie Childs on Seinfeld, the Johnny Cochran parody that... Do you remember Jackie Childs from Seinfeld? Yeah. There's that episode where it's like, um, you know, where he does the suit with like the spilled coffee. Yeah, yeah. And like the the, the woman using the bra at the top, that's what it was. Mm-hmm. So. And the supervising animator was Ron Husband, who previously had worked as a supervising animator for Dijali in Hunchback of Notre Dame. The little goat? Do yes. you guys remember the goat from Hunchback? And then he also was the lead character animator for the Elk in Fantasia 2000. Cool. And that's... Good. It, he's an Elk animator. This is his first person that he's... Lead super, animator. Yeah. Yeah. Good for him. And this is um, the the last of the supporting cast formally introduced to Milo. There are two others mm-hmm. that are not mm-hmm. formally introduced to him. There, first, we have Audrey Ramirez, the ship's mechanic. Audrey is great. She comes out like in her overalls and a little hat, and she's just like just, she's the youngest of the bunch. Yeah, she's what fourteen? Is she fourteen? I think she's. I 14. thought she was sixteen. She's a teenager. She's a young teenager, but she's an engineer, and she's like a genius engineer. What do you think? All of them have like I guess mole isn't mm-hmm. isn't isn't blue collar, but the rest of them are more pretty. Blue-collar. Yeah, Audrey Ramirez's voice, great character, by the way. Um, Audrey, her, she's played by uh, Jacqueline Oberdors. Um, her previous roles included um, the supporting role of Angelica in the Harrison Ford and Haish film Six Days, Seven Nights, where she was nominated for um, Favorite Supporting Actress, Comedy Slash Romance, at the 1999 Blockbuster Entertainment Awards. She, like, plays the girlfriend of, mm-hmm. of Harrison Ford that when Harrison Ford and Anne Haish go missing, like, she starts hooking up with Anne Heche's fiancé, played by David Schwimmer. Mm-hmm. And yes, in, in case you missed it, you heard that correctly, that at one point there was a Blockbuster Entertainment Awards, as that's, in the video store. That's quite amazing. I, I wonder how many, like, celebrities have, like, those trophies still, like, in on, like, a shelf, you know, and they look at them and they weep, a, they shed a little tear... And go wow. She didn't win. She was just nominated. Oh. Well, and she doesn't have a trophy. She was also in a film called Tortilla Soup, where she was nominated for Outstanding Actress in a Motion Picture at the 2002 ALMA Awards. Yeah. It's the American Latino Media Arts Award. Oh, cool. The same year Lennis comes out, she also joins the cast of the ABC show NYPD Blue, and she's on that cast for seasons 9 through 12. Finally. Okay. Probably the character with like the fewest lines in the movie. I think she she doesn't say a lot, but God, everything that comes out of her mouth is gold. Everything, and that is the beautiful, the amazing, the wonderful Mrs. Packard. Mrs. Packard, voiced by uh, Florence Stanley, whom if who played um. Bernice Fish on Barney Miller and its spinoff Fish, you know, the, the wife of mm-hmm. uh, Abe Lagoda's character. Also voiced Grandma Essel on Dinosaurs. Oh, nice. And she's great. She just doesn't so give a shit. this character is like 
another deadpan character, but like take it to a new like level of low like caring. She does like, not give she, a shit about any. She like I don't like I think she barely knows why she's there other than she's getting paid. Yeah, she's the, 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 she during the, like the Leviathan attack. She's just like having a casual phone conversation with a yeah. friend. Packard, sound the alarm. He took his suitcase. Marge, honey, I don't think he's coming back. Packard, I have to call you back. No, no, I'll call you. Yeah, she like, like she gives like the announcements over the intercom. So like yeah, the character dynamic lends a lot to the ca- uh, comedy, but like also on their own, each of the characters is funny. So it then, is a tremendous cast. Yeah, it's it really is. There's a Leviathan that comes along and like destroys their submarine. I don't think it can be stay. I you really have to witness for yourself just how amazing this oh, fucking yeah. Leviathan. This is. is a spectacle. Like we said before, this is a CGI Leviathan. Um, and like how they do it is like they're in like the depths of the water on like they go, do you hear that noise? Like, what is that? And like, they're looking around and you see like the black depths of the sea floor, um, out the windows and stuff. And like, they're all like looking and you hear this like low groaning come over like their, um, the submarines radio, you see like the shadowy figure of this huge thing that's even bigger than the giant submarine that they're in, you see its eye. And, like, this giant monster, like, Milo looks up at it and looks at its eye, and this line, he goes, Jim, Christmas, it's a machine! And they realize that this monster isn't, like, like an actual living being. It's, like, something that was created it's like a, a it's a giant mechanical leviathan it's a cyborg yeah essentially i should mention it uh as we mentioned before a lot of this film was cgi yeah but it blends in perfectly with like the traditional oh, animation yeah and that's thanks to a special computer program called inca mm-hmm. which creates like hidden lines that like mesh the traditional and the yeah. cgi so that way it doesn't look like it's just like is that deep canvassing I guess you can call it that. I th- that's what they use for Tarzan to do, like, the uh, vine scenes. Because, like, the like the trees and that were, like, CGI. And he's, like, skating across them. You know you know what I'm talking yeah. about? But, like, that combination. It's either of, that. It's the, same, it's the same program. It's either that or, like, a more advanced version thereof. Yeah. Um, but it absolutely perfectly works. Like, look back to, like, say, Aladdin. It's, like, the Cave of Wonders. Oh, yeah. You can definitely tell that's a CGI creation. In, like, sci-fi movies of this experience experimental era you got like Lilo and Stitch and you have Treasure Planet as well and they do the same thing with like a lot of the machinery and bigger monsters or whatever they're facing like the spaceships in Lilo and Stitch they're CG and they also very flawlessly blend into the 2D animation of the characters and with like Treasure Planet the chip uh, there's like I think there's a character that's CG in that one Ben Ben, the Martin Short Robot they're doing a lot of this at this time where to match like the more mechanical elements within the movies themselves, they use uh, new technology to bring a more three-dimensional like visual to it. But they do it in a way that like only they can with the money they have, you know, to make it look that fucking spectacular. Yeah, and it is very much very spectacular. So Leviathan Attack chaos and this is one of like two action set pieces in what's supposed to be an action adventure film and i do think that is a bit of a problem i think there needed to be at least one more the, uh, this Granted, is they're really good action adventure sequences yes but 
You just want more. So there, this Leviathan attack happens and it's fucking amazing. And like the ship's flooding and you see Audrey like going through, running through like tunnels and stuff, like fixing shit, closing shit up. You know, everyone's in a panic. And, and like, then people get into like individual like thumbering pods, like battling like it, they're like yeah. tight X-wings. Like I, I almost see like a an influence in science, like space science fiction in this like underwater world. Where, oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, and, and it's, it's really amazing. And like everything's blowing up. And then in the aftermath, a lot of people die. Yes, lots. So most of the crew, but we're left with our main characters, and we see them like in these underground caves. Main characters and like a few scattered soldiers. And originally, yeah. like the the death toll was supposed to be more gradual because again, yeah. there was supposed to be more than one monster fight. But we got it all out of the way in one go because then we get travel montage. There's a lot of good stuff in that travel montage. There's a lot of great character moments. I just wish those character moments could have existed alongside more monster fighting like they intended. We have, like, a few scenes where, like, and a lot of little character moments where they talk to each other. They, like, pull pranks on on Milo. There's, like, a scene where they're sitting around a campfire and Milo's, like, sitting off to the side. Like, working on, like, translating the journal. Because he doesn't feel, like, comfortable sitting with all of them. He doesn't feel like he's welcome. Yeah, and they don't feel he's welcome either. Yeah. And then the scene where I Sleep in the Nude happens, they have set tents all set up. And then all of a sudden you see these little bug-like things and they start setting the camp on fire. fire. They're fireflies. Yeah. Or this is one of the two monsters that survived. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the original five. How did this one out of those? I mean, like, it's a really cool concept, I think. But it's also like, a bit of a letdown after the Leviathan. Oh, yeah. This very much feels like a minor one. Yeah, because... It's, they could do, have done it more so, like, in, like, this huge, like, swarm or something like that. And I mean, like, it kind of is a, a little, giant swarm, but it doesn't feel yeah, it like doesn't it. it doesn't feel threatening. I mean, it does, but it doesn't feel like as It feels too abstract to be threatening. Yeah. It's like, it feels more like a force of nature than an yeah. actual monster. And yeah, yeah. this was originally going to be rectified because originally, like, right after the Firefly scenes when they first encountered, mm-hmm. like, the Atlanteans and mm-hmm. Kida, and originally her, like, introduction would have been, like, her leading a hunting party yeah. against, like, a giant um, monster. You know, I feel like that, that would, but again, got cut. Yeah. So we get that scene. The camp is set on fire. Everyone's running around. And then they have, like, no supplies after that. And they have to, like, get all their shit together and keep on going. And they're like, uh, you know. I should also mention that, like, when we talked about, like, the travel montage earlier, what really gets established in, like, Miles' interaction, then pretty very much the one idealist in a group of cynics. Oh, Yeah. They are all just like, okay, we're being paid to do this. So let's so do like, it. Let's do it. If like it goes well, then we become infamous. If it doesn't, infamous. we got money. So like they're all for it in the sense of, okay, we're here to do it. And it's a job. Yeah. They're passionate about their jobs, but not for the mission. Not Milo's, the job. Milo's passionate about the mission. Yeah. So then after they end up at Atlantis, they meet Kida. We talked yeah, about so Kida Yeah, so Kida is introduced. They hear some stuff. And then they see people beneath these huge, like, shield mask things. And one of them goes up to Milo. And Milo's like, ah, what the fuck, you know? This person lifts up their shield thing. And underneath is Kida. Kida is the grown-up version of the girl from the opening. Yeah. The little girl whose mother went in. Yeah. She was the queen. So she takes her little crystal around her neck and like heals like a little wound that Milo has. 
which establishes like the magical power of like this crystal and stuff. The last, the main plot of the movie is basically like squished into the last part. The last 30 minutes. Yeah. We have our introduction to Kida. It's established that the Atlanteans mm-hmm. know English. So Be- basically they know every language, uh, every language. Because Atlantean is a root language. Yeah. And to Mark Ackman's credit, he did approach it in that ma- yeah. manner. If you like It's it's inspired up- by what was it inspired by? Indo-European languages. This is from Kirkwise. Mm. He used a hypothetical language based on research, him being Mark Ackman, mm. used Indo-European and bits of Hebrew and Chinese. Whenever he created a word or a grammar structure that sounded too much like something in an actual language, he would change it. Another one of Mark Ockren's ideas that, like, the Atlantic writing would be boisterous or read in a zigzag pattern, as if, like, the words were wrapped around a pole because it's a back-and-forth movement, like, all water. So if you read, like, an Atlantic paragraph, you're supposed to read it first line left to right, wow. then second line right to left, it's so then third line tied. left to right, and so on and so forth. So she like goes, welcome to Atlantis. And then like sweeps her arm. And then like you see like the city and like a bunch of waterfalls around it and stuff. And there they are in Atlantis. They made it and like none of the crew can believe it. And then a bunch of weird shit happened. So first off, they meet the king. Kida's father is the king. Kida has an ulterior, we should say this, Kida has an ulterior motive. Mm -hmm. Not a sinister ulterior motive, but an ulterior motive nevertheless. So she, like, we meet this king and he's dying. It's Leonard Nimoy. And he's like, Kida, you've brought these people here. How dare you? Yeah. Like you've like, like we've lived in seclusion and like, how the fuck could you do this? The outside world's going to like ruin us, which Kida starts showing like Milo around. Yeah. In secret, because like, he's like, okay, you've got the day to, um, you know, rest up and then you got to go. Yeah. Um, So like. Did we mention the King's voice by Leonard Nimoy? Yes. Yes, you know, Mr. You know. Mr. Spock. This isn't his first voice acting role, by the way. He was he also was the voice of Galvatron in the 1980s animated Transformers movie. He was the voice of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in the Page Master. He did voice acting for two Star Trek video games, the 25th anniversary game and Judgment Rights. And he was the narrator in the Sega Dreamcast game Seaman. The supervising animator was um, Michael Cedino of the King. And, um, he was, and he did Coco Woman, Pocahontas. Yeah. A lot of Pocahontas alumni in this movie. Yeah. So I think something to talk about before we go into more plot is the Atlanteans. Because there is, like, somewhat of, like, this weird, like, almost white savory thing going on. Yeah, let's... Yeah. Um, yeah. And this ties into the fact... So, Keita's ulterior motive for mm-hmm. wanting Milo here. He's a linguist. Yeah. And the Atlantean language has apparently been lost the time over like the thousands the of years. The reading it anyway. Yeah, the reading of their language, um, the, the writing s- of it, working the those- The speaking it, uh, of it is fine. Yeah. You know, normally this, sometimes that happens with like yeah. decaying civilizations. But, but like, they've lived in seclusion for so long, uh, underneath the water and shit. And, and, and there's no reason for it to have disappeared. And if there is a reason, we're never told that reason. It's, it's, it's just because it's old. It's not It's not even that, um, like, you know, it hasn't been taught to, like, the future generations. Yeah. It is the same generation down there. Oh, they've, yeah, they've yeah. Been they've alive. existed for, like, they've centuries. Been al- the, um, Kida's been alive for, like, over a thousand years. Oh, yeah. It's almost happened. And this is very much, like, trying to hastily cover up a plot hole mm-hmm. of, like, having the intro where Kida's down... 
yeah. um, there when when Atlantis sinks, and now she's still alive, like thousands of years later. Yeah. But the problem is that creates another plot hole of you know. Why the fuck is how do they forget? Like, how they forget their language and culture when yeah, they like, they're all still the same like, people? It's very much like a dying culture, and like they, I think like you're supposed a to dying ask, culture that has no reason to die. I think because the people who are there for that culture are still around. I think you're supposed to assume that it's dying. Because, like, you know, they've experienced tragedy or something and a bunch of stuff has been destroyed, which makes sense. But, like, we're not told exactly what's been destroyed and why that would influence that. And, like, even if a lot of things were destroyed, that doesn't make that much sense. Um, and I think, it, it, like, we're also supposed to assume, like, a sense of, like, hopelessness in, in a way. Well, they seem like they're doing all right. For yeah, that's the thing. So, like, it, it's a very much a... Like, we, we have to rely on Keita's word... That you know mm-hmm. that things aren't as as great, and to Cree Summer's mm-hmm. credit, she does really sell that yeah. to the point where you you're able to like suspend your disbelief until after you think about it. After this leads to the other far more hashtag problematic thing that <laughs> it's it. So there's a lot of ambiguity in like. The, um, like, obviously this movie draws from a lot of different references for this culture, but but basically they are, like, a dark-skinned group of people in, like... Indigenous people. Of indigenous people of, in what is, like, created as a dying culture, and then, like, this white guy shows up and is, like, yeah... I can read your language, but you can't for like, which doesn't make any sense. Kita in the end, like, you know, like she becomes a damsel in distress. And it's, like, it's very white save is what we're saying. Yeah, and I yeah. feel like, like, be, like he has to save her. And I feel like in the original version, when like they weren't like living the same people alive for thousands of years, that element, that white saver element would still be there. Yeah. It'd just be less pronounced. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. And obviously, we're, and obviously, just full disclosure, we are two white people talking yeah. about portrayals of race. So yeah. you may not get it fully accurate, but this is like from our so, uh, admittedly relatively limited white perspective. So, and also something to address is like, um, n- like this was like a thing. But more racist in a lot of other movies at this time of like there's most depictions of indigenous people by like mainstream Hollywood and such are like like if they're in movies like especially in the early 2000s it's such a weird thing like it happens in fucking Serps Up where like there's like a group of indigenous people and it's like super like stereotyped and weird and racist and it's like it's so weird that it's a trend in the early 2000s, but it is. But, like, also, it's a trend throughout history, obviously. And it's a trend in the, like, source material. A lot of, like, the old, like, 1800s steampunky novels that inspired this entire... The entire action-adventure, like, genre, but mostly, like, this aspect of the genre that this movie is going after. So, like, even if they... It's not, like, explicitly like a lot of other things are, like, stereotyping and characterizing these people, but, like, it's still so not good, you know? And it's not well done at all. Like, you do get the sense that, like, most examples that they did 
do their mm-hmm. research in. They did. They like definitely tried to create an actual people in an actual world. That's the actual like, civilization. You do get yeah, that sense. Yeah, but also they fall flat on it. Yeah, they and they and tried like, their best, but they didn't quite make it. And it also, for me personally, it doesn't sit right because of a lot of the things that it's based on. And it doesn't really, you know, do anything to change. Those. Necessarily confront that. It, confronts it doesn't it confront it at really. It like tries to, but then it's a way, with like story. you know the greedy uh, Rourke wanting to pillage yeah. their artifacts for money. To the plot again, we like Kita's showing Milo around and like ooh, they're falling in love. You know, like he's like curious about her and like she's charmed Very, by him. So, um. Yeah, it, they do have a very good dynamic. Yeah, it's just very... Their relationship uh, develops very, very, very quickly. Yeah, again, because, like, the entire... It's third, Like, the entire second half of the second act and mm-hmm. the entire third act is compressed in, like, the last 30 minutes. Yeah. Then there's this plot of, like, it's revealed that uh, Rourke and everyone else is just in it for the money... And they're here, and they're gonna like they're, they're, steal. The, they're gonna steal the crystal to, from the Atlanteans. To in def- to the credit of the supporting cast, they mm. initially went down there thinking everyone down there was gonna be dead. Yeah, that, that, that's not not great, obviously. No, but you, you, but yeah. you, you know, and obviously they seem more uncomfortable with mm. it now that they know like they're alive. Yeah, I mean, but for the most part, they're still willing to go along with it. So it's revealed that you know these evil intentions. Kita and Milo are in this underground cavern. They learn about the like, heart of Atlantis from yes. like the cavern there. So like Milo teaches Kita how to read her own language. Ugh. And they go into these caverns and Kita like sees like the heart of Atlantis. And like she's just like her eyes start glowing and the crystal around her neck. She just starts walking towards it. Well, I, I should then, mention like, sucked up we should it. mention beforehand. So brutally brutally interrogates the king oh, where the yeah. location of the heart oh, of Atlantis yeah. is. Punches him in the stomach. Very fatal injury. Yeah. Um, and that's what gets Sweet to turn against him. Yeah. Like, he stays behind to, like, tend on his injuries. Yeah. Because he's, you know, the nicest one yeah. of the supporting cast. And obviously the rest of the crew is disturbed by this as well. Yeah. But it's not quite yet enough for them to, like, yeah. fully turn on them. Rourke eventually discovers how to get down to the crystal. Forcibly, he and Helga forcibly so- leave Milo and Akita with... Them. So Kita gets sucked up into the thing. And she like draws to it. So apparently, it's is, never like it's never explicit like why, but like I mean like there's a connection with her in that because it's like her like her mom's in there or whatever. Obviously, like it says in like times of like mm-hmm. trial, the person merges mm-hmm. with the crystal. But if you go in there too long, then you get lost to it, and it's it. And like, how does the crystal? And the crystal, like, apparently, like its own it's, living being as well. And like, that's really the heart cool. of Atlantis. And it's fine. But it also l- l- leaves you confused of like, what exactly warrants a time of crisis for this yeah. mysterious living crystal heart. I mean, like, the threat of these people like harming their civilization is a is like a, you know that might be a time of crisis, but like also. Kita is like befriending Milo and stuff like that. And also, so in a it's way, never it's never established how and who decides that. And also, the way Kita merging with the crystal makes the situation worse because that then makes Rourke able to grab it. Yeah. Um. So like, she literally becomes the crystal, 
and like is literally objectified. She's literally becomes an object. Like a big like, glowing blue person who is yeah, stays still and still, does not speak. It's still her and body. And is locked in a and yeah, I should yeah. And it's locked in a, a box. Rourke takes her body for material gain. Yeah. For for money. And Which, like it's very like which you can make some clever commentary on that, uh-huh. but they it's don't so they don't explicit. quite connect the dots, so it just makes it seem a bit gross. It's like very explicit um with what like it's literally what it is, you know? Like like you don't even have to analyze it. She's literally an object right now. Like it's literally what it is, but it also it doesn't go far enough with its literalness yeah. to make an actual point of it. Work has a thing. They're all set to like go. Milo's like, "What the fuck? What do you mean that you were all just in this for the money? What and the fuck's wrong with you?" He yeah. like he like shames all of them individually, and then you know, Rourke, That's when he just like beats up Milo. Yeah. And um, you know, the scrawny kid versus yeah. like big military guy smashes the picture of his grandfather just yeah. out of spite. And that's when like one by one, um, mm-hmm. the rest of like the supporting cast they turn on him. And I think it's interesting, like. Because it's like the order of those who like, uh, besides Sweet, those who like you know join up with yeah. Milo, they like, like turn on Rourke. It goes from like the most initially unfriendly to Milo to like the least. Mm-hmm. Like it starts off Audrey, then Vinny, then Cookie, yeah. then Mole, then Packard, and then Milo like uh, gathers the Atlanteans basically to like rebel against Rourke. Second. Uh, action sequence in this action film. So what happens is he like see like their crystal. They all have those little crystals that Kita has, and they're all part of that big living crystal. Um, and like, we mentioned crystals a lot. We sound yeah. like hippies. We do. We sound like we should be living in LA. New age kids living. Yeah. I'm not new age. I'm not a fucking hippie. Yeah. Fuck hippies. Fuck hippies. Um, Fuck hippies, but we also are hippies, apparently. We're very inconsistent in how we portray ourselves. inconsistency is in in character for this movie, so it's fine. Um, So they take the crystals and they, like, have these, like, big fish statue things that they touch the crystals to and they start riding them in the air because they fly and they're all flying around and then the big action sequence starts happening where they chase after Rourke and try to get Kita back and try to save these people so there's the white savior thing because Milo is just like yeah here's how to do this this and this and like you're gonna like like we're gonna save our people like your people you know yeah we did did do this and this and this and as uh, you mentioned, they're literally on flying fishes, which yeah. is, is amusing to me. Yeah. So If only they were riding on boomerang fishes. <laughs> I throw them into the air and they come <laughs> back to me. There's a hot air balloon, which... Oh, yeah. In the volcano. Volcano erupts. Um, I should mention this. Um, mm-hmm. Rourke, um, to lighten the load, throws Helga off to her death. Oh, yeah. So, like, her, him and Helga are, like, standing there and Helga's like... Oh, are we gonna make it? You know, I don't know if we're gonna make it in time before this volcano explodes. And then works just like fucking bye, and like throws her off. And then like there's a like a fight scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's this great fight scene. It's a really great fight scene. It's probably my favorite. It's one of my favorite Disney villain deaths. Actually, he um, what does he do? For the most part, Milo is very overpowered. It's pretty, he pretty oh, much yeah. gets out there through luck. 
So he like makes it up there on a flying fish. Him and Rourke start battling. Uh, meanwhile, like Rourke, Cookie and Audrey are trying to like cut through the chain that the box is in. Yeah, the, the box of Kita. I should mention that the stakes and, of this scene, I don't think we, is that without the crystal, like the lens civilization, everyone is going to die. Just in case you didn't understand like the, I mean, obviously kidnapping a person of itself is bad. Yeah, but this is like, oh, this is the like, the life force of an entire civilization. Yeah, we got like three stakes at once. You've got the stake of Kita being kidnapped. We've got the stake of Kita being in the crystal too long and merging with the crystal. Yeah. And we've got the stake of the life force of an entire civilization being gone. The, li- the life force thing is also a weird concept to me with like a group of indigenous people. Oh, as if like they can't sustain themselves. I, I, if that makes sense. There's a lot of like association with like mysticism and stuff like that with indigenous people that like gets exploited in like Hollywood and stuff like that. And this feels like a subtle, not really subtle, like one of those cases. Um, So basically Rourke and Milo are battling and then Rourke, like, what does he do? Stabs himself with the crystal? No, what happens is that like some of the glass is broken up the window where the crystal inside and like, Milo stab and like it like enchants the glass. Yeah. Milo stabs Rourke with the glass that like cuts his arm. Yeah. And so he Rourke m- turns into like this like crystal monster. Yes. And it's really, really fucking amazing. His eyes start glowing. He starts his, looking his like his skin turns blue into like all crystally. And then at first you think he's dead. Like he just turned to a crystal dead now. And then yeah. he starts to move on its own. He starts to look like what doesn't he merge with some of the lava too? He's like going after Milo and he's like, you know, it's really crazy and is he's like glowing and stuff. And then he falls into the propeller. Yes. Thing. And then, yeah, that's the, the and and again, he's shattered. Like, he's shattered. You don't see enough pieces. of Crystal Rourke, which yeah. is a shame because that was awesome. Yeah. Oh, also Helga's still alive and shoots a uh, shoots, shoots a flare gun into the balloon out of spite. Yeah. So Kita's saved. Yeah, she like rises up again and like then like that you she because they're not. Oh, yeah, because the, the volcano, the dormant volcano, for due to the climax, it erupts and like the lava's coming. So they rush her back to Atlantis. They rise her up into the air. She creates another force field. Mm-hmm. And then the lava covers over it. It like shields Atlantis from the lava. And then also her like crystal powers restore Atlantis to like largely its former glory of like its mm-hmm. original island and like these big stone guardian statues. Yeah. And then Kida comes back from the crystal, which, you know, they say that Kida's mother was in the crystal too long. I feel like Kida was in there a lot longer. How did she not get stuck there for it? I, I know it's like a suspender disbelief thing. So Kida saved Milo and like she looks into Milo's eyes and like Milo's like holding her and then like they hug and everyone's happy. So that's the, the, the credit. They don't actually go like in a full fledged romance right away. It's still no, like at no, the very no. much like, the beginning. Like she just it. like hugs him and is like, thank you, you know. Cuts to a bit later, you know, they're leaving on um, yeah. the rest of the crew is leaving on the fish thing. Milo stays behind. Milo decides to stay. To, like help them rebuild their society. Yeah. So, like, at least he's not just like, yep, I showed up and then I'm leaving. Yeah, um, and also, but, like, he's, he's very dedicated. And to, also staying And, with like, Kida. actually cares. Yeah, Kida, like, her, her father dies. Then, we see Milo carving this rock and, like, Kida, like, smile at it and stuff. And then, like, she taps her crystal to it and, like, they send it, send it up to the big flying crystal because it's representative of her father becoming part of it after dying. And then Kita becomes a new ruler and Milo is her bitch, you know, like, um, <laughs> um, 
And and like the the, the big stone heads that like surround the heart of lands are like the they the, spin very fast. The past kings, and meanwhile, like the um, the uh, crew, mm-hmm. you know, they give them like some treasure as a reward, and they become yeah. rich. And then um, for Whitmore gets like a crystal from Milo as like yeah. because he wanted like one evidence for of proof for so him. like he gets it in the mail for his he, um, with the picture of them all. And the crystal, and like he smiles at the photo. This wasn't about the treasure or anything. It was about like you know the preserving the memory of Milo's grandfather and his legacy for Whitmore. And it's a nice ending. Yeah, and it's really sweet. And basically, what happens is like they they're covering it up. They cover up the discovery of Atlantis. Yeah. um, So to protect the people from like people from going there, and you know, like they say that Whitmore went crazy and is missing. Help is missing. Help. Milo went down with the sub. Yeah. So, yeah, and then they... Which, how are they going to explain how they suddenly came into wealth? <laughs> because um, they're all dressed in, like, suits and, like, dre- fancy dresses and Mole's got, a, like, a, a, these cool black shades. So, it's n- we don't address that, and the movie ends. The movie ends. On release, um... They, just... d- they sell games in cereal boxes. Well, there's a whole bunch of games, but, like, the two, like, non-adaptation games, the ones that, like, act as, like prequels and or sequels both both of these first person shooter computer games created produced by zombie studios search for the journal which is a prequel game um that was given away for free with kellogg's corn pops mm-hmm. dvd the emperor's new groove uh and walgreens with quality processing photo prints uh the may 2001 issue of disney adventure and select locations at disneyland walt disney world the disney cruise line and then a sequel game commercially released called Trial by Fire. That was still a PC one. Okay. And then there's also like regular tie-in games for like the PlayStation so, and the Game Boy. So there is a PlayStation game named Just After the Movie. And I would like to talk about this because there is an advertisement that exists for this game where a family is on a road trip, right? They're just driving or whatever. They decide to drive into the ocean to go like find Atlantis. And like that, and then it's like buy our game. And, and marketing in the early 2000s is so weird. So Atlantis, the movie proper, it had its world premiere at the El Capitan Theater on mm-hmm. June 3rd, 2001. For those of you who don't know, that is the theater owned by Disney that mm-hmm. like primarily hosts like like the Disney premieres and screens of Disney stuff. Next door to it... It had at, an aquarium. It had a tiny exhibit, Destination Atlantis. Yeah. At aquariums of sea life provided by the... And the, this isn't the first time there's been like a tiny exhibit next door to the El Capitan for a movie premiere. There's but also, like, like, totally Toy Story for Toy Story. Yeah. Um, but this is a fucking aquarium. They got a bunch of fish. I don't know what else they got. Maybe stingrays, sharks, octopi, whatever. There's, there's a... this is, And the uh, sea life was provided by the Aquarium of the Pacific. Nice, nice. There was also a replica of Whitmore's library, which included a model of the Ulysses summary. That's mm. the name of the summary, the Ulysses. The Ulysses. That was used as a reference for the film. Displays for each character with objects from museums and private collections used as reference for the film. Mm-hmm. There was a series of interactive exhibits called The Vortex, which included ocean life you could touch. So yeah. I assume like stingrays and the like. Um, it landed bridges you could walk on that shake. Smoke rings that travel across the room. Like, there's so much like... You could ride a Atlantean cat tack vehicle. That's named like the flying fish vehicles. There's a landing laser tag. So we get all these really cool things based on this movie. Also, there's um, a build-your-own-scale model of Atlantis, and then you can see it crumble into the sea. <laughs> and there's a learn-to-speak-Atlantean. Yeah. So you get to... You and get create to, your own Atlantean necklace. You get to be an expert in gibberish, too. So if you're asking how it did, okay. Had a general release June 15th, 2001. 
opened number two opening weekend box office, grossing 20 million. Now, also opening that weekend, Lara Croft Tomb Raider starring Angelina oh. Jolie opened at number one, very much covering the same niche that Atlantis yeah. was. And then also, also was a face in competition, uh-huh. opened a month prior, little movie called Shrek. Pinnacle of DreamWorks, the zenith of fuck you to Disney, and Disney struggling with its identity in the experimental era, and DreamWorks like takes advantage of that, takes advantage of that, gives like the ultimate fuck you Disney, very much a product of Jeffrey Katzenberg's spite towards Michael Eisner, very much does cause a lot of. And I'll maintain this to this day, caused a lot of severe damage to the animation industry oh, yeah. as a whole. And like I know a lot of people have like whether ironic or sincere affection for Shrek, but I don't think that's deniable. I you have to acknowledge that it did Yeah, it created a lot of cynicism that existed within animation. One of the markers of the death of like mainstream theatrical traditional yeah. animation, at least in the US. Not only that, not only did he have Lara Croft, Tomb Raider, and Shrek, but also the next weekend, Fast and the Furious and Dr. Doolittle 2 open. And the Cats number and one Dogs number... later that month. Yes, Cats and Dogs. All of that takes attention away from Atlantis. So it grossed $186 million worldwide on a $120 million budget, which pretty much general Hollywood shorthand is that your film has to make like double your budget in order so to make a profit. It didn't do well. Though it did earn 157 million on VHS and DVD releases. Yeah. And the failure of this combined with the underperformance of Pearl Harbor that same year caused then head of Walt Disney Studios, Peter Schneider, who was very much one of the big like Eisner era executives, he resigned as a result of that. Yeah, and essentially this is one of the main films that gives the marker of theatrical traditional animation, as Tom Cito put it. There is, quote, there's a retrenchment going on. Everything is starting to be 3D. Traditional animators are feeling like Norma Desmond. Not only that, but also had like a mixed response from critics to give you a few. It was, it, critics noticed that it was messy. And also they had a problem with, was what we feel aren't really problems at all. Like a lot of them have problems with like the adult tone. Yeah. Quote uh, Stephanie that the Carrick, that trick. The big problem with Disney's latest animated feature, Atlantis the Old Lost Empire, is that it doesn't seem geared to kids at all. It's so adult that it's massively boring. Midway through, I found myself longing for a dancing gargoyle, a singing candlestick deck, a piece of toast wearing a diaper, anything to crack the classy sophistication that, quote, coats every frame. A bit of tackiness would at least give Atlantis some life. Even its colors are largely undersea blues and grays and greens. It's so swaddled in its own good taste that it sinks itself. I think the heart of its movie lies outside a lot of other Disney movies, which we've talked about before. And I think a lot of critics didn't like that. Yeah, and I don't think critics really knew what to make of it. They didn't the know what to make of a Disney movie that wasn't a Disney movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially since we had, the month prior, they had very much the anti-Disney movie. Yes. Yeah, I mean, Shrek. And it changed, I think Shrek also changed the way that, like, critics looked at animated movies, too. And I think one of the biggest loss is of... Uh, of Atlantis flopping is that the rides we could have had that did not happen. Oh, yeah. Like, Walt Disney Imagineering fish. was really excited to start developing some rides based on yeah. this. Disneyland was planning on re-theming the submarine voyage to Atlantis. Yeah. Um, 
like something that this movie was based on was like Adventureland, like Disney rides themselves. The time the people running Disneyland and the Disney Imagineers, they're fighting on whether or not to scrap the submarines. Paul Pressler had closed them in 1998, said it would hog space, was too expensive to maintain, cycled riders through so slowly. There was even a formal ceremony from the Navy to decommission those original submarine voyage stuff because they were commissioned by the Navy yeah. as like a publicity stunt. So months before the rise closed in 1998, several Imagineers, including Bruce Gordon and Tony Baxter, tried to publicly pressure Disneyland management to commit to reopening it. On May 17th, behind management's back, they put up a flag reading, Atlantis Exposition Imagineering Preparation Base to cause speculation. They did on-site testing for it in May 1988, again, infuriating Disney management. Um, and the plan for the submarine voyage, you would have been controlling mechanical arms from the window of your sub to grab co- gold coins and gems from the ocean floor. And then you were attacked by the Leviathan. Um, you know, it grabs the sub with its claw, the walls cave in and the water sprays. You would have lost your coins and gems in the attack, but each guest would have received a fake Atlantis coin at the end. For Magic Kingdom, they were going to build a roller coaster, Fire, Fire Mountain, a landscape roller coaster, the world's first morphing roller coaster, which would, the ride would start out as a full vehicle. Then in the middle of the ride, the floor of the car would drop out from under nice. you, leaving your you dangling, starting from a standard coaster to a suspended coaster. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be one of Disney's only suspended coaster rides, if not the only, right? Yeah, yeah. A uh, 73,642 square foot building. To keep that in perspective, Space Mountain is only 7,200 square feet. Mm-hmm. And every so often, the show building would shoot smoke and balls of fire. Unfortunately, not only did Atlantis flop, but also the plans for Fire Mountain were conceived in case Universal's Islands of Adventure was a success. Mm-hmm. Um, and Disney would have, like, have to make some competition. But unfortunately, at the time, due to... Universal's botched marketing plan for Island Adventure. Island Adventure was a massive flop. Nowadays, it's a huge hit because oh, yeah. of Harry Potter and the like, but back then, it was like very solid second best. So, what? I'd like to address that they're live action Disney. Yeah, everyone's got qualm. You've heard it. But rumor of um, Atlantis remake, total bullshit, you know. People speculated that Tom Holland was going to play Milo Thatch. He was, it was probably based on a lot of fan casts for him as Milo because Milo is very much like a part Peter Parker-esque character and everyone loves Tom Holland right now. He's in everything Disney right now. They absolutely really. should not do a live-action Atlantis remake, mm-hmm. but in the very unlikely event they did do a live-action Atlantis remake, William Jackson Harper would be the perfect My- live-action Milo. Mm-hmm. If you don't know who he is, he plays uh, Cheedy on The Good Place. But yeah, so before we go, I'd like to discuss a bit like what exactly happened to like the main creative team behind Atlantis afterwards. So first off, Gary Trousdale. This is the last film that Gary Trousdale and Kirk Wise directed together. Gary Trousdale was going to solo direct Nomeo and Juliet back when it was in development at Disney Feature Animation. Um, he was removed from the project in June 2003 Apparently, he got into heated arguments between then Walt Disney Feature Animation had David Stainen. The result of it was that Gary Trosdale was forcibly escorted off of the lot. I would love to know that to you. Nomi and Juliet as a whole, was can- that version of it was canceled in December 2003 then, because Disney management considered it too British. Then after he left, he left for DreamWorks. 
and he directed Shrek the Halls, Scared Shrekless, so the holiday episode. The Kung Fu Panda um, 3D film for um, Universal Studios Hollywood. Mm-hmm. A lot of like shorter subject stuff. And then he worked with Disney again, creative consultant. On the live action remake of Beauty and the Beast. Kirk Wise did the um, English language of Spirited Away. He directed it. He uh, he was the producer of Disney Nature's um, Oceans and also Chimpanzee Don Hahn. Um, he produced the Haunted Mansion movie. The executive produced a bunch of shorts that were originally intended for um, the never made Fantasia 2006, the Lorenzo, One by One, The Little Match Girl. During the Pixar buyout, he was named interim head of Disney Animation until John Lasseter could take over. He was the executive producer of several Disney nature films, including Earth, Oceans, African Cats, and Chimpanzee. Um, he produced and directed several documentaries in recent years, uh, Waking Sleeping Beauty, uh, Christmas with Walt Disney, which was commissioned by the Walt Disney Family Museum, Handheld, The Gamble House, Freedom Writers, Story from the Heart. This one has not been released yet, but will be exclusive to Disney+. Plus. Howard, the Howard Ashman story. He also produced and wrote the documentary High Ground and also executive produced Frank and Weenie, uh, Maleficent, the live action Beauty and the Beast, and Wonder Park of all things. You remember Wonder Park? And for screenwriter Tab Murphy. And he, he got the screenplay credit for a brother bear brother bear that's his, out of all things his currently last thing he's done for disney he wrote a film called dark country and he also wrote two direct-to-video animated films for both warner for brothers DC, yeah both superman DC batman apocalypse and batman year one and he also wrote seven episodes of the thundercats reboot two episodes of teen titans go and two episodes of be cool scooby-doo yeah, Academy Award-nominated screenwriter Tab Murphy wrote two episodes of Be Cool Scooby-Doo. Hey, at least he's paying the bills. In the experimental era, after the experimental era, 2D was dead. Everything was working against it in Disney because all of those movies were failing. Uh, DreamWorks is doing very well with its um, 3D animated movies. Don't Pixar- forget about Blue Sky with the Ice mm-hmm. Age movies. And Pixar was doing really well. So basically, you know, a lot of 2D animation projects around that time, like Iron Giant, also didn't do well. And then we get Chicken Little. Yeah, that's Disney feature animation, first entirely (laughs) CGI film. So, yeah. We get brief revivals of traditional animation at Disney with uh, Princess and the Frog and Winnie the Pooh. Yeah. But those don't do that well at all. Those, Those are really nice movies. That also had the misfortune of coming out against huge blockbusters. They, and also in a time where people were looking for not that kind of content. And the people that were, like, I think clutched to those things very dearly, even though they're like, they're great movies, but like, they're not the greatest. They're not like the best that Disney could have done. I don't think mm-hmm. they are like, they were the two stragglers these last remnants of in the dying animation style, which like shouldn't have died. Atlantis was a passion project. And so film with a lot of ambition. And if it, it doesn't really fully is. work, you can really get that sense of the of the of them wanting to create something truly great and truly different. And definitely it's a, definitely a very endearing movie. It's a film I would recommend. I highly recommend it. It's a very fun movie. It's not boring. Um, it's the characters bit, are great. It's all over the place, but it's definitely worth a check out if you like um, like science fiction, action adventure stuff. 
also like that little hint of like Disney's charm and stuff like that because it really, really does shine through. And the art style is great. The art style is great. The animation is amazing. Uh, it's a spectacular movie to look at. Like as we'll see on the show, Disney's experimental era mm-hmm. gives like a lot of mixed output. Like for every Emperor's New Groove, there's uh, Home on the Range. Yeah. But this is definitely one of the better it's, offerings it's that come in from the tops. them in that era. And like, even though it's not a perfect movie, it's at its core so enjoyable and it's such a nice watch and it's it, refreshing. And it knows really what nice. it, it wants to be. And even if it doesn't exactly. fully succeed in what it wants to be, you get enough of a sense of what it wants to be that you can get on its wavelength. So that's our episode. Yeah, our first episode. We did it. We High did five. it. Nice. All right. So we'll be... We'll we'll see you uh, soon. Yeah, we'll see you in two weeks' time. And this is your co-host, Dallin Agatone. And this is the other one. Signing off. Signing off. Next time on Lost in the Vault. During Backstage Party, Walt Disney shared with you a few selected scenes from his first big musical motion picture, Babes in Toyland. Every sparkling moment, an exciting new entertainment treat. Starring Ray Bolger, Tommy Sands, and Annette, and Ed Wynn. Don't miss Babes in Toyland, coming at Christmas time to a theater near you.